0: All right, if you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind turning to 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5, that's the uh, text I'll be reading from in just a moment here. And as you guys turn there, I'll kind of familiarize you a little bit with uh, what it is that we do as Navy SEALs. Uh, on the last deployment that I was involved in, I was out in Iraq, and we we're given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with a group that's called the ISOF. This is the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figured the best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside the wire and fight side by side with them. Well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good. Because we've bagged and gagged some bad dudes or making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. We weren't really sure if the ISOF was is ready for us to pass the baton off to them. So we decided, for this final operation, why don't we make it a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up. And we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they start from scratch. They hit the streets. They find this source that tells them about a man as an Iraqi policeman. So now we're looking into this guy that's a policeman by day. But at night, back home... He's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. Kind of give you an idea of the type of character that makes a suicide vest. You know, oftentimes these guys aren't very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. In fact, they have such a difficult time finding somebody to volunteer to put it on. uh, That in one instance over there, I think this really captures how depraved and wicked their minds operate. Uh, What they did was they took two mentally handicapped women. And they strapped these vests onto them as they shoved them off into a crowded marketplace, watching from a distance, and they set it off with the remote, killing these women and so many more in that place. This kind of gives you an idea of the type of characters that we're up against. Uh, but the ISOF, they've got this guy's number. They figured out where he lives. They've got a plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract, and it all checks out, looks pretty good. And they mentioned one other thing. They said, hey, look, we realize the ISOF, we get shot at more than you SEALs do. We think we figured out why. And so we're kind of like, okay, what do you think it is? And they say, it's the color of your uniforms. And we're like, really? The color of our uniforms? Not the way we shoot, move, communicate, the way that, you know, we operate tactics-wise. You think it comes down to the mere look and color of a uniform. And they're convinced of it. So they're saying, we're wondering if you guys would be willing to maybe take off your American colored uniforms. And we got a pile of ice off uniforms you guys can put on. So, like, all right, let's get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on to get shot at more with you? And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms, but we'll put them on. Well, the funny thing is, is that my dark complexion, start growing out a little facial hair, then get on one of these Iraqi uniforms. I've got that thing on. I'm walking around. And the guys on my team are like, hey, Williams, you really blend in with those guys now, don't ya?" Like, I guess I do. On this final lap, I'm standing up in the Humvee, that section called the turret. You see it in the movie sometimes. I've got the 50 caliber machine gun in front of me. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say it's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got my night vision goggles on. I'm looking through my green little world and just going over this mental inventory. I'm thinking about all the things I know firing off in my mind about this night. I know my weapon is headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, how we're going to get in, grab him, extract. But here's one unique thing that I know that floated into my brain that makes this operation different than every other operation. I know this is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'm going to be back in my hometown, heading to Beach, California, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night, was that we were actually being set up the entire time uh, to get thrown in the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we're being set up on an ambush. And now we find ourselves engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best as SEALs that ultimately led to the possibility of me standing before you here uh, this evening. Now, before I touch on how that played out, I want to backtrack a little bit, share with you my road to becoming a SEAL, and most importantly, I want to get into God's Word. And so what we're going to do now is turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to read about a soldier by the name of Naaman, and this guy could have been a Navy SEAL had there been such a thing during his time. So 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and so it goes. It says, "Now Naaman." commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus says the girl who is from the land of Israel. So the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Translation, he's bringing the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold and silver apparel. He's prepared to pay this guy off. Do whatever you got to do. Just give me my life back. Let's jump ahead to verse 9 where we find Naaman on his way. So, verse 9 says, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me, stand, call the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over this place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, the far part, the rivers of Damascus far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? So how much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just so thankful for this time that we have together. We're thankful for the opportunity to be able to open up your word, uh, which we know is timeless. Timeless. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to every individual here that is not here by accident. As your word says, you've appointed our times and our boundaries so that we'd perhaps seek you and reach for you, though you're not far from any one of us. And so, Lord, we know uh, that your spirit is here, and we know that you are intimately aware with the situation and circumstances of every person here. You know us better than we know ourselves. As you know, the number of hairs on each person's head And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us, speak to these people individually and collectively through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Relevance of this passage coming up. Like I said, a little bit of my road to becoming a seal. For me, fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, I didn't have any real big plans. You know that saying that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was my aim. First year of junior college, I'm not passing any of my classes. I'm just kind of going along with it, ditching, hanging out with friends. But now it's the end of the year. It's time to take finals. As I'm pulling into that school parking lot, that's when it just really hit me. Like, wow, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be. Because what do you get told when you're young? Hey, the sky's the limit. You can do anything you want to do. The big word potential gets thrown around, and you believe it. But you also believe you got some time to figure these things out. Well, I'm beginning to realize, like, hey, it's time to fish or cut bait. So I see what's going on with my life, and I know I don't want that. I don't want to live a wasted life. Nobody wants that. So I'm just thinking, how do I turn this all around? All my peers are passing me by. I'm not making it academically. So I'm just brainstorming, sitting there in my truck, and I think I come up with the perfect plan. I know I'm going to go do with my life to turn this all around. I'm going to go become... An Alaskan crab fisherman. I'm watching Deadliest Catch on Discovery. I'm thinking, most dangerous job in the world. And I almost settle on that. When this other idea entered my mind. Like, wait, no, why can't I go join the military? But not just that. I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. So right there, school parking lot, Golden West College, about to go take finals. I didn't study for. I just make up my mind. That's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so my first order of business is this. If I'm going to be a frog man, I don't need to go to school anymore. I started my trunk up and took off out of that school parking lot. And I started preparing right away. And I got to let my dad know some bad news and good news. That's kind of the way I framed it. So I let him know the bad news that's going on at school. Of course, he's just kind of face-palming me like, all right, Chad, uh, the good? It's all right, Dad, I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so he's kind of looking at me, watching the track record of my life up into this point. And just like any good father, he's just trying to be the voice of reason. He's clearly painting the picture for me. Like, hey, son, just so you know, joining the military is not like anything you've ever done in the past. Like playing ball or skateboarding or going to a local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. So if you join the military, and then maybe, maybe then you find out, oh, this isn't for me. Or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training. Hey, just to be clear, you're still going to be in the military and you're probably going to get a job like chipping paint off some boat in Japan. You know, well, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, like, what? Th- 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 those, this is the perfect motivational speech for me right here. Like, that gets me fired up. Like, I am not going to be that person. And so I'm excited. I'm preparing. Days go by. He invites me inside again. Wants to give me a little pep talk, I guess. Like, what's up, Dad? He goes, all right. So you really want to do this? You want to be a SEAL? I'm like, yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. This great, I set up a workout for you with a Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget, as I'm looking over at the screen to see what's up with this, I'm thinking, my dad does not know any Navy SEALs. He doesn't have SEAL friends, so what is this all about? And I see it in a little one-liner on this email. It just says, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? I'm like, play? Like, Dad, let me get this straight. You met some guy off the internet that says he wants to play with me, and you're arranging this all right now? He goes, oh, no, he's a SEAL, Chad. I'm like, you can't trust everything someone tells you on the web. No, this guy's a SEAL. I'm like, all right, I'll go meet up with him. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation he had with this man on the phone prior to that email that I had no clue about. I found out months later. But I'll give you guys the backstory up front because it's better that way. So on the phone with them, he says, hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, but here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know what he's getting involved in. So I'm just asking for a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do, I need you to crush him. Just bury him. Like beat this desire of becoming a SEAL out of him. And so he didn't get an answer on the phone. He Thought about it for a while. And then the guy shoots off the email. That's what can Chad come out and play tomorrow, Matt? But I have no idea. So I'm meeting up with him in Oceanside, California. And this Navy SEAL, he puts his finger at me. You, Chad? Like, uh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba, I was Bubba from that point forward. Get on over here. He's got me dropped down, doing push-ups and sit-ups. He brought this portable pull-up bar. You can hang from anywhere. So I'm like outside the bathrooms at the beach, doing pull-ups, people looking at me all weird. And then he sends me off on a run out into the wetlands. Long story short, he says he's going to catch up with me 15 minutes into the run. So 15 minutes in, I'm looking at my watch, and I'm not seeing him. And I don't know what the final destination is. The only instruction I had was go down that dirt trail away from the ocean. So that's what I'm doing. As I continue to run, I'm looking back thinking, where's this Navy SEAL? And as I'm running a little bit more, I start getting this idea in my head. Like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. And as I'm celebrating and looking over my shoulder, it is like a scene out of Terminator 2. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, do you remember when the bad guy can like morph into knife hands and chase down a moving vehicle? That's the Navy SEAL coming down this trail with knife hands for me. There's nothing I can do to keep that distance. He catches right up to where I am. I'm thinking we're just running here. He gets past me, turns on a dime. I'm greeted by his fist, just impaling my stomach, like physically assaulted, right? Clothesline, feet off the ground. My wind, it was knocked out of me before my back even hit the ground. I just see this poof of dirt up all around me. And you got to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. Remember, at the time, the only intel I was operating with was this. Some guy, my dad met off the internet. Now he's got me on the ground in the wetlands and jumping on top of me. I'm thinking, child predator, like this is happening right now. And so he's on top of me and not stopping. He's just throwing me around, ragdolling me. I still have that sound of the threads of my shirt just ripping, spit flying out of his mouth as he's screaming, going ballistic. And I'm feeling it hit me in the cheek, the forehead. But then I hear these words come through. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL, you better stay three paces behind me. And there was just something that clicked right there. Like just time stopped, the pain went away, and I had the clarity of thought that I've never had before. I just knew if I quit right now, I will forever be a quitter. Like the way I respond in this moment, whether I like it or not, this is the moment that's going to determine the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so I just kind of reaffirmed this attitude with that wind knocked out of me like, die before you quit. And so he says it again, three paces, turns and takes off, and he's showing no mercy. No mercy. So I'm going after him, trying to hang in there with him. I'm on his heels. He's trying to shake me, get rid of me. This goes on and on, a few miles down the trail. He finally comes to a point where this is it. He stops. But he's pacing back and forth. And he looks like one of these UFC cage fighters just waiting for the referee to say the words, like, let's get it on. And at the time, you know, I'm like this teenage skater kid. I don't want to project to the Navy SEAL that I'm I'm wanting to fight him or willing to do that. So I remember having this, like, self-dialogue go off in my brain as I look over and I'm thinking, like, he's crazy. I'm thinking, okay, Chad, don't set this guy off. No direct eye contact. Just use your peripherals, right? Just use your peripherals. <laughs> he breaks this really awkward tension as I'm walking around. He says, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And so I just kind of shrug my shoulders. I'm like, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he totally loosens up. I mean, big smile on his face. He goes, great. Hey, you want to meet up again for another workout tomorrow? I'm thinking, are oh, we going to talk about the flashback you had on the trail? Like, what was that all about? And of course, he wasn't going to let me know. So I find out months later that he's getting on the phone and uh, telling my dad, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start working with him. So from that point forward, I began to meet up with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvinston. And thankfully, it was no longer these beat down sessions. It became more of a, a building up. In fact, eventually, I moved on from just being Bubba to uh, he started calling me Junior. All right? Like he really took me under his wing as he's mentoring me and just really investing into me. And uh, he got me ready. So I signed up, I got a date, it's set, I'm shipping off. And uh, he kind of took a, a last minute opportunity to go overseas again. And so he's telling me, you know, who knows, Junior, perhaps I can make a difference. He's very patriotic. And so he's getting on the phone with me just before he goes. And he says, uh, all right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing, referring to he's going to Iraq. He says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anybody I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And to hear that from him, I mean, that, I, I don't even have the words other than that that meant the world to me right there. And so just thinking, like, how could I turn my life around in that parking lot in Junior College? Man, go become a SEAL. But now i got this awesome mentor that I never, like, foresaw along the way. And he's telling me he knows I'm going to make it. Like, I can't wait for my opportunity to make him proud and prove him right. And so I'm just excited for just what's coming next. And so he's reminding me now on the phone how he's only going to be gone a couple months. So by the time I start SEAL training, he says, I'll be back. We're going to see him make it through. So he said goodbyes. Can't wait to see him to get back, Scott. So now he's gone. I'm just days away from going. Well, I'm getting up one day. And the television's on in the background. And what I see on the screen, I can't believe because I see a picture of Scott smiling. And my first thought, Scott's on TV all the time. He's a phenomenal athlete, getting invited on these shows. He's the only man to ever beat the beast on a program called Man vs. Beast, where he raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course and pulled the head of the monkey on the monkey bars, okay? So, like, phenomenal athlete. But I'm looking at this picture, I'm smiling, and I'm thinking, what are they bringing him on for? So, I'm smiling image, still image, and then I see in the lower third of the screen, Scott's birth date. Followed by a dash. And it says March 31st, 2004. And before I could process in my mind, like translate that, what does that mean? I didn't even have that opportunity. Because now it switches from the smiling image of him to horrible video footage. The vehicle that he was in with three other Americans burning in the background as they have Scott and these guys out in the street, lifeless. And they're videotaping as they try and do everything they can with sticks and rods to mutilate their bodies. And then they find rope and wrap it around their legs and hook them up to vehicles and go dragging them through the streets of Fallujah. And they arrive at the Euphrates River Bridge. They string the bodies upside down, set them on fire, and then they begin to chant over and over a message for us in America as they look into a camera. They want us to hear, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needs to say, I'll never have the words to describe just what all the surrounding moments and events were like. It's one of those things that does radically change you as a human being. You don't go forward the same person from there. But I do think that there is a little bit of a lesson that we can extract out of this as well. And it has to do with sort of the broad topic of dealing with adversity. So the thing is, if you've made it this far in life, you've already faced some adversity. Nobody gets by without facing that. And here's the deal, is that if you continue on, it's imminent, there will be more. It's not a singular event. A lot of times these outside circumstances that come invading our life, we have no control over it. So if you have no control of the fact that you are going to face adversity later on in life, what's the one thing you do have control over? Well, the one thing you do have a grip on is you are the determiner on how you will respond when that wave comes. You are the determiner of whether or not that adversity will be what we could call a wing or a weight. Will it be a weight just wrapped around your neck to sink you, leave you knocked down, never to resurface again? People just say, oh, they're up for the count. They fail because that adversity entered their life. Or do you find a wing in there somehow, which is really just a way to rise to the occasion, to say you're not done. You're not going to roll over and just play dead. And so I'll just share with you, we always got to be looking for the wing. Where is it? And part of that wing that I found in that situation was reflecting back on the last conversation I had with Scott. Because that is something we all do when we lose somebody, unexpectedly. You want to go back to the last time you were with them, the last conversation you had with them, and you just go over it because that's all you get. It becomes that much more important, like, what did we talk about? What was said? And that's when I remembered his words when he says, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. I think that was the beginning right there, the wing where I became determined that I'm going to do this. I'm not just going like to quit and not do it. I want to do it for so much more now. Like I want to do it in honor and memory of my mentor. I want to walk in his footsteps. I need to become a SEAL. Not only that, I'm not going to lie, at the time, a big part of me wanted the opportunity to get some revenge. And that is a fuel to live off of. It's not a good one, but it is a fuel. And I'm just trying to be transparent. That's where I was at at that point. And those reasons would mature along the way. And so I enter into the Navy, make it through boot camp, finally get my shot at SEAL training, got my mentor's name on the inside of my hat as a constant motivation and reminder. The numbers speak for themselves. Started with a class of 173 guys. How tough is it? By graduation day, only 13 of the original 173 still standing there. Now that graduation day, that moment, we're going back to that parking lot in the junior college, like, ah, if I could just become a SEAL. I really felt like, that would have me set for life. Like, I could just ride that momentum. And then on top of that, doing it for so much more. I remember the spot I stepped out at, at graduation, as I looked up and thought, Scott, we did this. So now it's one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. I got my whole family there and friends. As I'm getting the trident, which says, you've done it, pinned into my chest. Here's the crazy thing. It didn't take more than 24 hours before I felt like I started going through... Some of the lowest times. Life just seemed to circle the drain from that point forward and I couldn't wrap my mind around why. At the time, I mean, I just achieved the thing that I thought was going to deliver the ultimate. I thought I was going to have this this enlightenment now. I'm a seal. And instead, I'm more miserable now than I've ever been in my entire life. It was years later I heard these words spoken by a Christian philosopher, Ravi Zacharias, over the radio. where I thought those words hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I experienced. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved, that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and the end, lets him down. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved, that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there is something I believe every man and woman in this room is familiar with, at least to some degree. It's the human condition. It's that whole idea that the grass is always greener on the other side never really quite fully satisfied where we're at. Well, what do you want? I just want a little bit more. And so what we do is we buy into the belief that if I could just get to that goal, that achievement over there, Maybe it's climbing up the ladder at work. Maybe getting a higher salary, or maybe what you're missing in your life is a I need a relationship. And then you have that, and it's like, okay, this isn't doing. We need kids. That's what we need. And now you're getting yourselves into a a bigger home and all these different things. The bar is always moving, and we're just never really satisfied. We just want a little bit more. You hunger and thirst for a a goal. It leads to some good stuff. That hunger and thirst leads to drive, work, hard work, discipline. Have you ever gotten there and drank it up though and been satisfied just for a little bit to find out that now you're just thirsty all over again? But what do you do? You don't panic here. You just kind of step back for a moment. You put on your thinking cap. What's going on? Why didn't this deliver for me? And a light goes off. We think, oh, I got it. The reason this didn't deliver, like lasting fulfillment, is simple. I didn't go for something big enough. If I really want it to last, I need to raise the bar. I need to trek up that mountain higher. I need to go to that next rung of the ladder. So that's exactly what we do. We have that new goal in our crosshairs that we're thirsting after. We're shooting up. You get there, you drink it up, and this is the one. It's going to have you satisfied. But what happens? You just get hungry and thirsty all over again. It's like a vicious cycle, and seemingly there just is no end. I say seemingly because that's not the case. You see, the big question is this. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can just step back, put on your thinking cap, and go, okay, okay. What am I going to do? I know, I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. Nope, can't do that this time. Why? Because you're at the last rung of the ladder. You can't say, I'll just chuck up the mountain a little bit higher from here. Why? Because you're at the peak of the mountain. There is no more elevation. And yet still, you're hungry and thirsty for more, but worse than all the other times because now there is no next. This is a reality that we see whenever you look at the lives of professional athletes or movie stars Rock stars, they have everything the world has to offer. They have climbed the ladder and gotten to the top. They have the fame. They have the fortune. There's really nothing they lack in this world. But what do you see going on in their lives? That is a group of people that is destroying their own lives with drugs, alcohol. They got the dream job. Like people think, oh, to be them. Could you imagine? I'm watching TV and hotel rooms thinking, what a job to get to go to parts unknown? Like all over the world, and just eat and be a critic about food, taking his own life, and we're like, why? Why would someone do that? We don't understand it. We think people would trade their situation to be in yours. Like, why are you taking? You're so miserable, you don't want to live. Well, maybe having all that the world has to offer isn't really all that's cracked up to be. In fact, the wisest one that ever walked the face of this planet, Jesus of Nazareth, he put it together this way. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? And so for me, I guess you could say that becoming a Navy SEAL, that was my version of gaining the whole world. The reality was, is that my soul was not oriented correctly at that time. I didn't have a right relationship with God through Jesus. I grew up in a household that went to church. I would call myself a Christian. I'd be like, yeah, me and Jesus, we're cool. You know, but... I kind of just picked it like a baseball team. That was it at that point. And so I'm on a team, if anything, looking forward to just maybe getting some revenge for Scott overseas. There's a little bit of idle time. I was using that idle time in a very dangerous way because since I felt like I just didn't feel underneath it all anymore, and I thought the best thing I have to look forward to is going overseas, in the meantime, what is it that makes me feel? And I think a lot of people can kind of empathize with this to some degree, maybe relate what made me feel and stimulate me was, hey, just go out and drink. Just get a buzz. But then just going way too far with it. That buzz would lead to just drinking into uh, total oblivion, blacking out. And there was no remorse for it, though, the next day. Wake up the next day. Dude, do you know what you did last night? And, you know, have these things said and try and laugh about it. Like, ah, oh, I did what? As if it's something to brag about. But looking back, it's just shame. It's robbery everything really came to a head one night where I needed 26 stitches in my knuckles for a thing I don't remember. I really put my family through a lot. And uh, I wish I could tell you I had remorse as they're confronting me saying, we love you, you're our son, but you're not welcome at our home anymore. You're dangerous. We're not going to be this place for you. If you come back to Huntington Beach, just be a crash pad for you to sleep it off. We don't want you doing this anymore. Well, I wasn't going to stop. I just laughed them off like, whatever, I will find some other place. But what I was thinking about was I had stolen two kegs of beer. I'm pretty sure we only got into one of them. I think I know where I left the other one. I need to get into my dad's garage. And so after I'm getting stitched up, I'm going back to Huntington, showing up to go get my keg. And my dad's right there, very serious, not letting me in the door. And so I decided, okay, I scared the family. You know, I'm sobering up now. Like, I owe them something. I'll punch my card in at church. They got an evening thing they're going to. Starts at 7. We'll be out of there by 8 30 or 9. I can suffer through it. I'll go, they'll be so happy I finally went again, that by the time we get back home, they'll go to sleep, I'll fall off their radar. My night doesn't even really begin until like 10, 30, 11 o'clock anyways. And so, I'm like, okay, I'll go to that thing with you guys. You will? Yeah, let's go. So we go. And there's a man speaking there at this event by the name of Greg Laurie. (laughs) And he opens up. 2 Kings chapter 5, and this is the story. And so now, I kind of want to go through Naaman's life and circle back and picture it. Like, look, Naaman, he's a commander. You see just all the success and status, this identity that he has. He could have been had a seal, had there been such a thing during his time. He's described this as this mighty man of valor. Like, even the king wants to rub shoulders with Naaman. That's how big league he is. Mighty man of valor, but a leper. Well, how serious is that? It's a little bit more than eczema. Jesus, looking back, says nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. That's the first time I've ever said it that way. I don't know why. I just popped it out of my head. <laughs> it's a death sentence, though. Nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. So now circle back and picture Naaman's life like this. Mm, so much for all that success. So much for what you see from the outside. You see a mighty man of valor. The armor that he wears, it probably covers those things up because we typically don't really uh, flaunt or expose our weaknesses, do we? We tend to cover them up. And so I'm sure he had the long sleeves on and the armor, right? But the truth underneath it all, what's really going on? Underneath all that armor, underneath that clothing, he's deteriorating. He's falling apart. He is literally a dead man walking. Well, how quickly I really felt... Like I was relating with that man right there. I found myself listening. Because I really felt like I wear the armor of being a SEAL. Like I got it going on. Woo! Living a dream, rock star. This is what SEALs do. When in reality, what's the truth? The truth is underneath it all, I feel like I'm deteriorating. I'm falling apart. And maybe many of you here this evening can relate with that person as well. Because when you think about it, really, who are you? Like, who are you in front of your coworkers, your family members, your friends? When in reality, just as Naaman had some other issues going on underneath it all, that's not really who we are underneath it all. And so I find myself listening. And he's just breaking down Naaman's story. There he goes. He gets to the door of Elisha's house. He's bringing the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars. He's prepared to give this guy his wealth. Just give me my life back. Here's the crazy thing. And something you need to understand during that time. The more important of a person you were, the farther they would come out to greet you. Like, if you're a king, what do they do? They don't just come outside the house. They'll meet you outside the gates. They'll be outside the walls like a welcoming party. Ah, oh, the king. And so it's kind of proportional. Like, the more important you are, the farther they come out to greet you. So Naaman, I mean, he should have had some type of red carpet ceremony going on as he's coming to the house. But what happens? He gets all the way to the door, and the guy he comes to see is just in the back. Not even to come give him a face-to-face. Sends a servant to the door, and he just kind of like relays the message. Oh, yeah, okay. So he says that if you uh, want to be clean, just go down the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times. as you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You'll be clean. Well, how do you think Naaman felt? You know, got to wonder. It's right there in the Bible. It says he became furious. He started venting out loud. He's expecting this guy to come out. He's leaving in a rage saying, I expected him to come out. He thought it was going to happen, that he was going to put on a big show, wave his hand over the place, call on the name of the Lord is God, and just like strike the leprosy away. Instead, he gets treated like, treated like a, a, a normal, right? And so then he's going on about the water thing, like go dip myself in the waters. Aren't the waters where I'm from in Damascus far better than all the waters of Israel? If I could just go wash it off, why don't I go try that and be clean? Of course, he's probably already tried that. So as he's leaving in this rage, if you haven't caught it yet, Naaman's real problem is himself. It's his pride. And that is, I think, really at the root of it all for most of us human beings, if we're being honest. Man, it's our pride. And so here's the cool thing. As Naaman's about to just get out of there and blow it, he's surrounded by some pals, some men that care about him. And they're trying to look out for him. And they just know, look, we just need to get our name in. Back in front of that God of Israel, and something supernatural is going to take place. So they're just doing what they can as Naaman's buddies, right? Running up to him, pleading with him, trying to use straight logic. Like, look, Naaman, you know, if the guy came out, gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. Like, let's use our imagination here. This is where my head goes. Like, what if the guy did come out, put on a big show, roll out the red carpet? What an honor to have you here, Naaman. Now you want to be fixed of your leprosy. Have we got a task that only a mighty man of valor can accomplish? It's going to take strength and might. You're going to overcome adversity, kick off your shoes. we got some broken glass. And then we've got this CrossFit exercise. You have to complete the wad in a certain amount of time. But if you get to the end, in the amount of time, like you will be fixed of your leprosy. it would probably be like, like he really would be like, show me where to start. <laughs> but because it was such a simple thing, just go wash and be clean. What it seemed like to him? Foolish. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross in the New Testament. It says the preaching of the cross is foolishness. To who? To those that are perishing. No doubt about it, Naaman here is in a state of perishing. But something these guys say, it wasn't super eloquent. This is just how God works sometimes. He can speak to any one of us. You can say like the lamest thing, right? And people will come up to you sometimes. you would be like, why did I say that? And they would be like, hey, you want to know It really spoke to me when we had that conversation? You know, it's like, what? And so something these guys say, God uses. And he decides, I'm going to do it. And he's about to do what I think is by far the most difficult thing for any one of us to do. He is about to humble himself. I mean, that moment where he's changing direction, he's changing a whole lot more than physical direction. He's changing direction with his heart, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. He's getting it now as he walks out to this water. I think he gets it. That is not the water. It's going to fix me. Is that if I'm faithful, if I do what this God of Israel wants me to do, he will be faithful. And he will do the heavy lifting. And so he's dipping himself as he's stripping away that armor. He's stripping away what he needed to go. Five, six, seven times comes up. And the literal language in the Hebrew on that seventh time when he comes up, it says he had brand new skin like that of a baby. Could you try and picture it? Just the mess of leprosy, the filth, and then all of a sudden, brand new skin. Well, I remember being on the edge of my seat, listening to this message, relating with Naaman, almost like watching a movie and relating with, you know, the character. You want to live vicariously through the character sometimes, right? You're rooting for guys like Batman. It's a little bit of escape when you go to the movie theaters, right? You don't got to think about what's going on in the outside world. For a little bit, you just get to leave that clutter and debris behind, and you're rooting for the, oh, he's going through adversity, Batman. And then just like any hero, one of these good movies, like it all works out for the hero in the end. Look at it for Naaman. And then usually what happens at that point? Then the movie's over, the lights come back on, the credits roll, and then what do you got to do? Got to go back outside, face reality again. It was a nice little escape for a while. Well, I want to make a point that the credits don't roll right there. That just as God provided this way out for Naaman, he's provided a way out for you and I as well. But first we got to understand the condition. Remember Naaman? He had his leprosy. This disease that was destroying him leads to death. What do we got going on underneath it all? What's the disease that we have? Yeah, I heard it. You could call it SIM positive. It's sin. And it destroys us. In fact, the wages of sin is death. And that's not just a mere physical death. Nope, don't get off that easy. The Bible's pretty clear. It says it's appointed once for man to die. Then comes the judgment. What it's referring to is what the Bible talks about in Revelation 21. The second death. And I'm not going to mince words. That's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the lake of fire. A place that Jesus didn't want anybody to go. So he continually reminded them about how serious the consequences were. Don't want you to go there. And so that's the consequences of it. But God provided a way out. And, and what, is that, what is that way out? What, what form does that come in? To go dip ourselves in the Jordan River? Go find that? Nope. Yeah, God sent his son to dip down into the world. That's Jesus. And he lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. And so that leprosy now, if you haven't caught it yet, what is that a picture of? It's a picture of our sin. That's how we look spiritually speaking. We are spotted and blotted and blemished. We're struck through with sin. There's nothing we could do to wash it off ourselves like Naaman couldn't get his own leprosy off. But God provided a way out through Jesus who was spotless. He was holy and pure without blemish. Goes to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? The Bible says it pretty crystal clear, Matthew chapter 1, to save his people from their sin. So what takes place at the cross is Jesus trades skin with you and I. He takes our leprosy, our sin upon himself so that we can be switched and lavished with God's grace and his mercy. As though we lived the perfect life that Jesus lived and he dies in our place as though he lived the sinful life that we lived. And this next part is very important. He also rose again from the dead. Sometimes that gets left out. Why is that significant? Because it shows a whole lot there. It shows he has power over sin and he has power over death. Not even the grave can hold him down. And that is where our hope is. It also vindicated him because he was wrongfully accused of blasphemy. But him rising again from the dead, God rose Jesus from the dead that vindicated and it validated all the claims he made. Claims like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he conquers this grave. But remember, for Naaman, what was the turning point? Like, how did it all work out for him? It started with he had to go to his own funeral, right? Interestingly, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you want this everlasting life, this forgiveness of sin. If anyone wants to come after me, you must deny self you got to go to your own funeral. In order for you to live, you got to die. you got to say I repent, which is a word we use in church and outside in no other context. So what does repent mean? It means more than I'm just, sorry, I got caught. It's I'm so sorry. I want to change. I'm so sorry. I am repulsed by this person. I, I want to separate myself from this person. That Jesus, you, cruci- you were crucified up there on the cross. Like, nail the old me. And as you are buried, I hope the old me is buried with you. And as you rose again new, that's what I'm asking for. I'm asking for that new life that only you can offer. Forgiveness of sin, eternity in heaven, and a lane to be in while while I'm here on earth. Well, anyone that repents of their sin and puts their faith and trust in him to do what? To do what he says he'll do. The heavy lifting. Save you from your sin. You don't have my word on it. You have God's word on it. He'll remember your sin no more. Removed as far away as the east is from the west. What do we need to do? We need to repent and trust him. So for me, March 14, 2007, sitting there, Pastor Greg Laurie, delivering this message. And just, I'm just getting hit by it. I realize this is truth. And this is truth that I need to react to. I need to respond to favorably, the right way, right? Not turn my back on it. Not get all just, you know, filled up with pride and let let the moment pass. The door was open, And that door doesn't stay open all the time. Honestly, something told me within my conscience, like this door's opened for you many times before, Chad, but this just might be the last time before it closes shut for good. And so I responded. And I experienced what the scriptures say. If any man be in Christ, he is this new creation. Like the old me was gone. The old me passes away, all things become new. Forgiven of sin, a place in eternity, but not just that. Here's like the cool part too. It's like while I'm here on earth, Now, I'm doing earth, like, with him. I have a lane to be in. I could go back to being a seal and actually enjoy it. I couldn't enjoy it before. Why? Because I made it God of my life, and it could never live up to being God. Some people experience that in relationships, right? They put their spouse in a place where they can't. Don't put that on them. They can't live up to that. You make them the most important thing to you, and they're supposed to deliver for you, like, happiness and fulfillment. And it's like they can't live up to that. Don't put that on them. Only God belongs in the throne of your life, the most important preeminent one. But then once he is there, guess what? Everything else takes its proper place below. It's all supplementary. It's all just, it's, it's, it's added to life, right? That's where you get in the scriptures. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You could be in the construction world in the name of the Lord Jesus, The corporate world in the name of the Lord Jesus. Stay at home, mom, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now you're taking these things that were so temporal before. It's just temporary stuff. And what kind of significance did it carry on its own in and of itself? Temporal significance. Not much. But when you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're taking the Lord Jesus who carries eternal weight and eternal significance. You're infusing him into the things that we do here on earth. And now those things that you do, now they carry now they actually bear eternal weight. Now they will echo in eternity. So fast forward to that final operation. I wish I had time to cut to the details, but let me just cut to this. Obviously, I made it home alive. It doesn't always work out that way, though. And so I want to highlight some names that have paid the ultimate price. One would be Michael Mansour, who is a U.S. Navy SEAL. And when he's in a place called Ramadi, Iraq, providing cover for other SEALs on the road, a hand grenade got thrown up there on the roof, and he could have saved himself. There's other SEALs up there with him, though, that didn't have time to make it past his grenade. So in a split-second selfless act, he said to these guys, grenade so they could take cover as he covered it with his body and absorbed the blast of that grenade on himself. He suffered and died. But because of what he did, all these other guys, they lived. So you can mark these words down in history. Greater love is no one than this, one that lays on his life for his friends. My friend Scott, although he is killed in all these awful things, hung from that bridge, it wasn't in vain. One of the last things he said to me, Junior, when I go over there, perhaps I can make a difference. And so as I look back, I realize, like, he is a picture of those words in sacrifice. Greater love is no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. And then one more, the one who spoke those words of greater love. Who is it? It's none other than Jesus. And when did he say it? Prior to the cross. And so if you could just take men like Mike Monsoor, Scott Helmson, and so many others that have gone before us and let them help you for a moment. Let them help you to get a clearer view of what the cross is all about. Look at the cross through the lens of their life. That as Mike Montsour jumped on a hand grenade, absorbed the blast of that grenade on himself. Why? So others could live. When Jesus went to the cross, he absorbed the blast. Not of a hand grenade. He absorbed the wrath of our sin upon himself. Why? He covered it. So that we could live with him in eternity. And as my friend Scott, killed and hung from that bridge, ultimately for freedom's sake, let's never forget that Jesus, he was killed and he was hung from the cross at Calvary, wasn't he? So that we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. So greater love is known than this one well, at least in his life for his friends. You can see it in men like Mike Monsour and Scott Helvenston. And now look to the cross. That's the proper perspective of that King of Kings, that Lord of glory, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And thankfully it doesn't stop at the cross. Remember, he rose again from the dead. What we are to do is to repent. Like hold on to this knowledge. You need to do something with it. Repent and place our faith and trust in him. Now, I want to let you know that after the logical consequences of repenting and placing your faith and trust in Jesus happen, you're a new creation, but God's not done with you. What does he want? He has purpose for you while you're here on earth. When he's done with you, he will take you. Why are we still here? We're here to know God. And then what? To make him known. And so how do we do that? One of the greatest ways we could possibly do that is engage In the battle, because there is a battle. Just as real as God is, Satan is real. He's alive. He is active. He's carrying out operations here on earth. His goal, very much like a suicide bomber, like this is global war on terrorism. He's like a suicide bomber. Suicide bombers, when they strap up, they know they're going down. They accept that. But they don't accept that they go alone. Their whole goal is take out as many people with me as I can in the process. In a very similar way, think about Satan. He is strapped, isn't he? He knows he's going down. We could read the back of the book. He goes down that lake of fire. But he's not content with that, is he? He wants to take out as many people with him as he possibly can in the process. And how does he go about that? He goes about that by going after your coworkers, your family members, and your friends. He wants to try and get them in the crosshairs of that sin and judgment. But when you have been set free you no longer are under the bondage and captivity of sin the oppression of it because you've been set free from jesus guess what you now are a soldier i love what c.s lewis says he says enemy occupied territory that is what this world is but christianity is the story of how our rightful king has landed you might say in disguise and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage I love that. That message resonates with me. Yeah, I want to take part in a campaign of sabotage. Sabotaging the kingdom of darkness. And we do that with the greatest weapon we have, the gospel. It's the greatest weapon we have to charge the kingdom of darkness with. And so coming up, really just in what? Like a week and a half now, there's a big charge that's taking place, isn't there? And so we need all hands on deck. We need as many people to help out with this as possible. So here's the incredible thing. When you go to the crusade at Angel Stadium next week, you know, we're not there just to, you know, be onlookers, right? From the sidelines. At the very least, we should be bringing people with us. Like, remember Naaman? Like, these guys went out of their way to just, like, we got to get our Naaman in front of that God of Israel. Like, Naaman had just left to himself. He just would have gone on and on and, and probably completely missed it. It's amazing that he has friends that, like, came up and said, let's just get him there. Think about it. Don't you have some neighbors? Don't you have some people you work with, some friends, some family members? Or maybe you don't have the right words to say. Maybe you're nervous. It's tough to share with people that are close to you sometimes. That's not an excuse to not do it at all, right? We're not off the hook. But it's tough sometimes. And sometimes, one easy way to do it is say, I just need to get my friend in front of that message about the God of Israel at the stadium. And something supernatural could take place. I've seen it happen myself with so many friends, neighbors, I just take them there. Even people I've shared with and shared with and shared with, and like nothing's happening, and then they go, and it's like, you couldn't do that back home when I was talking to you? Like, (laughs) Pastor Greg definitely has a very special gift. And so we should be going and and bringing people, inviting them, and, and praying for them. Like, don't just say, like, I'll see you there. Say, like, all right, what time should I pick you up? Like, make sure they'll get there because the enemy will give them any and every excuse in the world at the last moment to not show up. And so this is a battle over their eternal life and so many of them, they don't even realize that. But we do, we're aware. And so we should be highly motivated to do something about it. Here's one of the biggest ways that we really need help at the crusade. And it's like one of the coolest things you could do when you go to the crusade. Uh, We need help with people doing what we call decision follow-up on the field. And so this is kind of the way it works. You would just go to the stadium as usual, uh, but if you sign up to do this, Uh, they would have your name on a list. And so as you walk through the gate, uh, they'll give you a a couple of decision follow-up Bibles, new believer Bibles. And you just hang on to those things. And then you go to the crusade as usual. Sit wherever you want to sit, worship, enjoy the music, listen to the message. And then when Pastor Greg makes this salvation call and people go walking down onto the field, you just go walking down onto that field right there behind him, right? And as people are praying to respond to the gospel You're that person that's right there. Maybe try and find somebody that you think is a little bit, you know, similar to you. Whoever you want to talk to, right? This is an opportunity to totally creep on some people and just, like, stalk them, Mike, all the way down, right? Like, I got this one. They pray and you're like, hi, how you doing, right? Don't be too weird, right? Because what we're looking for is for you just to be not a theologian, not the person that has all the answers to the questions in the world, not at all. All we need you to do is hand them a Bible and be a friend. Just be what we call a five-minute friend. And you're just, you know, keeping the ball in their court. You don't got to do a lot of talking. You just ask them about them. And trust me, it's their favorite topic. Everyone loves to talk about themselves, right? So you just go, how did you find yourself down here on the field? Like, this is the first time you've ever responded? Is this like a a recommitment? Like, you know, just ask them questions. Be a friend. That's what we're looking for. And so there's other ways you could serve, but all those slots are taken, all right? This is what we really need, the decision follow-up people. And so did you guys all get, I know you did, you all got a card uh, as you came in and it gives you, can you guys just hold it up? Yep, it's that right there. Of course, I was supposed to bring one up here. I don't have it. So can you hold that up like real big server? Can I have that one right there actually? So if everyone would just hold up their card, let me know you got it. Because this is kind of like, this is the crux of the night. Yes, all right, cool. Now if you guys have a pen or a pencil, whatever you got, if you're interested in serving in this capacity, and think about this, right? Jesus rose again from the dead. Can we not just get off of our butts one night and help out in this capacity? And so if you want to do that, all you do is check decision follow-up worker that is at the top right there. And you pick the night that you want to do the decision follow-up. Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Throw your name. Throw your cell down. But most importantly, put your email and write legibly. That's a problem sometimes, right? Right? unfortunately, people will miss out on their opportunity because it makes no sense and nobody gets back to them. So when you fill that out and say, I'll do it, I'll be a decision follow-up worker, you're not gonna miss out in any capacity. You're not gonna miss out at the the stadium. It's not like you're not gonna hear the music. It's not like you're not gonna hear the message. You get it all and you get to be involved. You could look back one day and say, like, I was a part of that. Or you might be that person who looks back one day and says, I kind of like wanted to, but I chickened out. I wasn't a part of it. Don't be that person. And look at it this way also. It's a big opportunity for you to go down onto the field. I'm going to spread a little rumor here, okay? I don't know if it's true or not, but this might be the last crusade that's done at Angel Stadium, and this might be your last opportunity to go down on the field in that capacity. I don't know, all right? I really don't know. But there's a rumor floating around, all right? So... If you guys could fill that out and just give it to me or give it to one of my buddies on the way back as we close out the night, Uh, you'll see the the table out there where we have a lot of resource materials, and we got all these invite cards for you guys. Just grab a stack of them. Like, you can't grab too many. Just pass them all out. You can throw them on, on top of people's cars. You can... You know, they have door hangers. You could go around your neighborhood, like, super early in the morning or late at night if you're worried about someone seeing you. And just throw all these door hangers on there. Like, get them on there, right? Like, get this stuff out there. Because, look, it literally has a, a, a shelf life. It's no good after August 23rd through 25th, right? So this stuff's already printed off. Can you help us spread this stuff out there? So grab stacks of it on the way out. And if you're, like, one of those new technological types, right, millennial or something like that, and you say, like, I don't deal with paper, Right? just text me. All right, we could text you. All we need you to do is text us. And so I think we have a screen and you just text the word serve to 64600. So serve to 64600. 600. And uh, if you've got like a new iPhone or a new like Android, here's like one of the coolest things someone just taught me in the back. I'm like, I don't have a QR code reader. They're like, no, dude, you just take your camera now and you zoom in. Just take your like everyone like, go ahead. Snap a picture of that. Zoom in like you're going to snap a picture, and it'll actually, it'll identify, that's a QR code right there, and it'll like, you know, and all of a sudden, like, shoot you a text, or take you to a website. So just text SERVE to 64600, and you can do the same stuff that, you know, we're doing on the snail mail paper stuff right here. You can get it done all digitally, all right? And so that's where we really need some help. I really want to encourage you guys to do that. And uh, if we could just bow our heads and pray together about doing that, please sign up. We really need your guys' help for this. And we're excited to be partnering with you. Uh, Father, we just come before you so thankful for uh, this, this night. Thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy. Realizing they don't come freely. That there are brave men and women that go before us as we speak right now. Standing in the gap. Defending this way of life. And we certainly remember those that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price. And we do not forget your son Jesus who paid it all. He paid the highest price he possibly could to provide a way for us. And so, Lord, our desire is just to live worthy of that cross. Please give everyone here just the the strength to do the right thing, uh, to sign up, Lord, that you would give them the boldness and the confidence, the same type of boldness that even the Apostle Paul needed to ask for, that he would have boldness. We ask for that. We all need it. There's boldness. We Don't want to do this on our own. We can't do it on our own. And so would you please go before us? And uh, we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Awesome.